Now, one of the primary reasons that this is so important, again, is already tied it together to, to our understanding of and pursuit of intimacy with God, because a delight in the Lord, the desire to find our pleasure in Him is also not wrong. In fact, it is the fundamental command of the believer that you are to find all of your satisfaction in Christ alone. You see, physical intimacy is, is only a picture of that. Again, it's an expression of that. But the greater picture is that it is right and good commanded for you to find all of your satisfaction in God alone. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of his sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Proverbs 5.15 makes this very clear. Drink water from your own cistern, really in contrast to the prostitute, to going to the prostitute. Drink water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone. And not for strangers with you, let your fountain be blessed. Here it is, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoice in her. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. What is that? Well, you know, this is just for procreation. We're in marriage. and The Bible doesn't describe it that way. Unfortunately, one or other spouse can begin to view it that way, and it destroys the beauty of physical intimacy that God designed and causes some of the very problems with adultery that exist today. We have to understand how this works. Now, again, it may be that some of you are sitting, and perhaps the ladies, sitting, well, this is a man thing. It is not. Okay, It is not at all. Song of Solomon, which was a a book written about uh, sexual intimacy in marriage, within the bounds of it, Now, again, you can make application to Christ in the church from the Song of Solomon because marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. But it wasn't written to tell about Christ in the church. It was written to tell how God delights in physical intimacy and marriage. Yes, in in emotional, relational intimacy as well, but grounded in a vibrant and healthy physical sexual intimacy. But it begins in Song of Solomon chapter 1, verse 2, with the woman's delight in the man. This may surprise some of you, and don't don't be afraid. I'm not going to read all of the Song of Solomon this morning. It wouldn't be appropriate. But this is. This speaks of of the woman's desire. She enters into courtship with Solomon. This is the beginning of their courtship relationship. She says this, May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. I I believe these, these project forward, as it were, into what will happen in marriage. It isn't in our courtship, this is what we need to do. But this is something that she is thinking about as they enter into courtship, the beauty of his kisses. Woo, I mean, when was the last time you taught your kids that? And some of you are getting to the point where you're going to need to teach your kids on these things. You're going to teach this? It's a a beautiful and right thing to desire the kisses of the mouth of the one whom you will marry? It's beautiful. It's the right thing. Because for your love is better than wine. When was the last time you taught that? The thing that causes that the world turns to in in extreme measure to find pleasure, wine, it says love is better than that. Physical intimacy is better than that. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. We're not going to go there. Your name is like purified oil. 
Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. She almost switches the image to say, you know what? Everyone else thinks you're, you're really good looking too. But I get you. And that is sweet. That is sweet. Guys, it, it's there. I'm not making it up. If we understood these things better, there would be less adultery. We wouldn't still wrestle. We would still wrestle with it. I, I understand that. And we're, we're human and, and, and trying to live out this kind of love towards one another is very difficult. I know that too but it is what the Lord has called us to. So this physical desire, sexual desire to be pleased, to find pleasure and delight in one another is right and good and holy. It is only when it is desired outside the bounds of marriage with someone not your spouse that it is then a a grievous thing before a holy God. Again, MacArthur says this, in the middle of a biblical warning against adultery, husbands are instructed in Proverbs 5, let your fountain be blessed, rejoice in the wife of your youth. The Song of Solomon is devoted to the beauty and wonder of marital love. God has designed and blessed sexual expression within marriage, and to malign or denigrate that proper expression by such practices as forced celibacy. In some places, there's physical mutilation. It's a perversion. It's as much of a perversion as fornication, adultery, or homosexuality itself. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the Song of Solomon is the only book in the Bible. That's sometimes how people view view the nature of marriage. It's only about physical intimacy. I know that. There's much more to be said, but we must not remove it from the Bible. Love, romance, and marriage are about far more than physical attraction, but they certainly include it. And we as healthy, growing believers and lovers of the Word of God need to understand and teach these things so that we might have healthy, strong relationships in, in the area of physical intimacy. Now, one of the primary reasons that this is so important, again, I've already tied it together to to our understanding of and pursuit of intimacy with God, because a delight in the Lord, the desire to find our pleasure in Him is also not wrong. In fact, it is the fundamental command of the believer that you are to find all of your satisfaction in Christ alone. You see, physical intimacy is, is only a picture of that. Again, it's an expression of that. But the greater picture is that it is right and good commanded for you to find all of your satisfaction in God alone. See, somehow we get this idea that Christianity only about, well, I better obey, I better do it now. You better obey, you better do it now. We understand that. But the reason that you do that is because in doing so, you are able to find the delight of your soul. That's why you obey. And it's right and good that you be fully satisfied in God. You delight in him. Scripture is full of this. I can only give you a couple of verses. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight, desire, passion, affection. Not the same as sexual intimacy. Again, it's not the perversion of the cults. Those are the same kind of thing. But that our physical delight in one another pictures... Again, and, and in some senses helps us to have that delight in God when, when we properly understand it. And a perversion of it keeps us from, hinders our, our intimacy with the Lord. First Peter 1 Peter 1.8, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. What kind of terms are those? Greatly rejoicing, joy inexpressible, full of glory, finding that in Christ. And that's in the midst of trial. Psalm 1611, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Very fascinating. If you read through the Song of Solomon, you'll find that same phrase. 
talking about pleasures in, in, in the right hand. And, and, and there's, there's an imagery there that is deeply passionate. And that is we, we are to find our delight in the Lord. And a misunderstanding of marriage and a misunderstanding of physical intimacy and maleness and femaleness keeps us from understanding a delight and intimacy with God or harms it. Why do you think there is so much attack on the nature of maleness and femaleness and on marriage? So it's no accident. The enemy of our soul would love to rip from us the picture and experience of intimacy with God, and he will start there physically, and it, it harms all of society, and it harms you as a believer. Now, the Bible is clear, again, that lust overtakes both men and women, just as pleasure is participated in by both men and women. And again, there are differences. This isn't the place or time to, to delve into that in the way those things are experienced and pursued, differences in men and women, but there is still intimate desire. You were built that way, both of you. And we see in the Bible indications where this is perverted on both sides. Genesis 39, 7 says, It came about after these events that his master's wife, that is Potiphar's wife, looked with desire at Joseph. She didn't didn't just look at Joseph, right? She looked with desire at Joseph. I want him. I want to experience pleasure with him, and he is not my husband. Couldn't Couldn't be more clear. She desired, and what'd she say? Lie with me. Good-looking guy, right? Had had all kinds of great characteristics, right? She desired him over her husband. She said, "Lie with me." That's exactly what we're talking about here. That desire, and of course, from the from the male side, there's multiple places in Scripture where this is found. But probably most classically for us is with David and Bathsheba, right? Second Samuel eleven two. Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed. He walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. Seems always to be danger and wandering around on roofs. Ask Nebuchadnezzar. But David as well, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. No problem there. In in essence, assuming that he didn't go up to look at her, he sees her, woo, okay, she's beautiful. Now he's got a choice, right? What does he do? If you go further on the passage, he sent for her. Ah, there it was. The second look, as it were, the consideration. I will have that beauty. Now, don't mistake this. This was not some kind of momentary lapse on the part of David. Well, right, there it was. David had been practicing adultery all his life. He had more than one wife. That's adultery. We are made to have one wife, one wife alone, and sexual intimacy within marriage with that one woman for the rest of our lives. David was continually practicing his own sexual desire by by taking other women Right? and bringing them to seeing beautiful women and saying, I will have that one for my wife, and, and making it legal, as it were, but still violating the command of a holy God. This was no mistake. It was no accident. David had set this pattern in his life, and so he continues it here. I see a woman. I see her beauty. I want it. It's not the woman I'm married to, but I'm going to have it anyway. Begins in the heart, of course. Extends out the desire first. Extends out into then the sin. But again, it was not Bathsheba's fault for being beautiful. And it wasn't a problem that David recognized it was what he did with that knowledge, what he did with that truth. So it's an idolatrous sexual desire, a sexual desire which I will then sin to get, sin to keep, or sin because I don't have. That's idolatry. It's not the sexual desire itself because that's right and good in the bounds of marriage. But it is also selfish sexual desire. That's number two. Idolatry is full of what? And these are bound together. You can't separate them out. Idolatry is full of what? Selfishness. I will have this for myself. I will have this one that is not mine so that I myself might receive pleasure, really without thought of her. Of course, that's what taints physical intimacy in marriage as well when it becomes selfish. So certainly selfishness can exist, and even idolatry can exist within a marriage. But again, not the desire of the problem, the selfishness that's the issue here. 
You see, sexual desire isn't wrong, but when it becomes perverted, it is exercised selfishly. We desire to use others for our own personal pleasure, regardless of the impact on them or the benefit to them. And again, particularly without the pleasure of God in view. To enjoy the pleasures of physical intimacy without the pleasure of God upon it is selfish in the extreme, idolatrous in the extreme. This is a direct violation of the rights of the offended spouse in marriage. Now we, we move it out just a bit to consider the one who is, who is offended and violated as well, the spouse of the person that we would commit adultery with or think about adultery with, right? And it's stealing from them that which is precious, dear, and forbidden. Of course, that's why when adultery in the mind has different consequences than adultery, physical consequences than adultery in the flesh. But turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We see this, we see this kind of explained to us. And again, we'll spend more time just working through these passages in light of how we, how we defeat this sin next week. But we're just kind of touching on some of them this morning. There's a selfishness involved that God hates when it comes to adultery. So in 1 Thessalonians, he says this, verse, chapter 4, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. His own vessel is his own body. Each of you, whether man or woman, you need to know how to possess your own vessel, not in lustful passion, right? desire expressed inappropriately, sexual desire, just like the Gentiles, what? Who do not know God? Of course they do this. They don't understand who God is. They don't understand his rules for this. And most particularly, they don't understand his character and why he created male and female. In fact, they deny that entirely. And so therefore, of course, they deny that sex outside the bounds of marriage has any problem at all, any consequences at all. Now, experientially, they know better. Talk to secular psychologists. Talk to those who, who understand relationships, and they will tell you that without exception, infidelity causes internal problems, without exception. But nonetheless, they don't know why. They can't figure it out. And they keep trying to erase it through drugs or through some kind of counseling. We need to get rid of your conscience, whatever it might be. We've got to remove that. It will never be removed. There is an impact always when there is infidelity, always. But the Gentiles don't know that. They don't acknowledge that, and so they press on in it. We must not. We cannot because we know God. And so we know why we shouldn't be doing this, and we have the power not to do it, and so we don't have to exercise our selfishness. He goes on to say, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. What's the, again the picture? The picture of a man who takes another woman's wife. He says, you defrauded him, you've stolen from him, you've taken that which is his. And even in mental adultery or in internal adultery, uh, you need to consider more carefully the man whom you're violating if, if, you are, if you're a man lusting after a woman. There's a, there's a relationship there. There's a marriage there. And even if you haven't actually committed the act, it, you are in great danger of, well, and you're already viewing that man as nothing, worthless. Same way women on the other side, you're viewing the man, the husband in the matter as, as nothing. You're not considering his value before a holy God and the relationship that he shares or the children involved or any of these things. You're transgressing. You're defrauding. You're stealing. It's selfishness to the extreme. I will have that and I don't care what it means to you. I will think about that. I will do that. And, and how it devastates other people, I don't care. I will have it. Of course, this is how we are. It's, it is not as though I have any less ability to do this than anyone here or those pastors that I mentioned before. I'm equally as culpable and equally as, as able to commit these sins as anyone else. And so the commands to you and the passion to you is the same as to myself. It says, let no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. 
It's a very powerful word. He is the one who brings retribution. This is upon believers, not unto eternal hell. These are believers, but he brings his vengeance in the form of his discipline. And it is called that because there's a jealousy that God has for his own glory that is violated in adultery and a jealousy that God has for the protection of and the love of his own people that you are violating when you commit this act and when you begin it in your heart. The Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. Sexual sin is, is, is not a game whether it's internal, as Jesus makes very clear here, or external, either way, in both cases, it's not a game. Of course, this idea of, it be, of, of selfishness not being allowed when it comes to sexual intimacy has already been bound up even in the Old Testament in the law, Exodus twenty seventeen. What does it say? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. She's not yours. You may not selfishly have her. It's not yours. It's out of bounds. You can't have it. If you're married, you have your own spouse. If you're not married, then you have the privilege of waiting, properly viewing sexual intimacy, either in singleness, setting it aside, knowing that the Lord has, has created it for marriage alone, and pressing on to love the Lord in singleness, being able to draw your fulfillment from him alone, or waiting as a single until such time as you can pursue it rightly. In all cases, you have the ability to pursue sexual intimacy and think about it properly, and there is no excuse for being unsanctified in this area. Now, please, I understand it's difficult. The next several weeks, we're going to talk about the difficulty and how we work through it. But we have no excuse as believers. We know God. We have been solemnly warned. So both the negative side of the discipline as well as the positive side of delighting in God should drive us away from this sin. This cannot be stressed strongly enough. And in fact, the next verses we're about to read, and here we'll just touch on the idea of radical amputation as the means of dealing with this sin. Right? We'll just begin to touch on this. But Jesus couldn't have been more clear. I mean, you think that I'm making too big a deal of this? Wait till you read these next two verses. You think I'm overemphasizing the danger of this? Wait till we read, get to these next two verses. Jesus doesn't play. When it comes to sexual sin, and he, he uses these illustrations for this particular sin, not that they wouldn't apply to other sins as well, but directly to this one. So read it, read it with me. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. And by the way, when it says if, there's an and if there. The and is not translated, but it directly relates in the grammar back to what Jesus just said. It's not new teaching. Somehow, whoa, you got a right eye, tear it out. How does that relate? It relates directly to what he just said. What's the implication? Your eye saw, your heart lusted. If that happened, tear the eye out. That's the picture. It's a metaphorical picture. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. Your right hand would be that with which you pursued the physical intimacy. Cut it off. Not only cut it off, but tear it from you. It couldn't be more strong. The most valuable pieces of your body, right hand, that's why right is used because that's the place of, of highest favor. The idea is just, he's just heightening the language. Not that your right eye is more important than your left eye, but you get the picture. This is so important. He's heightening it by saying the most valuable piece of the pieces of your body, right eye, right hand. It wouldn't matter what it was. If it caused you to sin, this sin, get rid of it and not only tear it out, but do what? It's not like, well, tear it out and leave it on the ground. No, if this is so important that you would get it as far away from you as you possibly could. So the idea is you rip out the eye in desperation to not have this sin, and then you throw it as far away from you as you can. I mean, an incredibly visceral illustration. I can't even bring it, really. And the people would have been absolutely shocked, stunned at this idea. I would do what? Just to avoid lust? Just to avoid this in my 
heart? Because again, the picture here is metaphorical. You're saying, well, how is this a metaphor? It's literal language, of course. Well, don't you believe in a literal grammatical interpretation? So there aren't any metaphors. Of course there are. All right? Well, literal grammatical uh, contextual hermeneutic says that if it can't be literal, right, is Jesus actually vindicating bodily mutilation? No, it violates all kinds of other principles of Scripture. Besides, if you pulled out the right eye, what's going to have to come next? Left eye. Right hand, then right hand. Or right hand, then left hand. Yes, you're going to get stuck. He's not trying to lop off continual pieces of your body physically. He's saying this is how important it is to not commit sin. And he gives the, this visceral illustration of chopping off body parts. There's been people who have misunderstood this in, inappropriately, literally. Right? And, and, and by the way, when we say metaphorical, it certainly is the actions of tearing out the eye, but it relates to a real action. And that's the way metaphors work. When you interpret a metaphor, it doesn't mean that everything around it then is spiritualized. You're not actually dealing with sin. No, it's a metaphorical action to deal with actual sin. Just as in other places in the Bible, you have metaphorical examples for real physical events. That's the way we interpret the Bible. The cure for adultery is, number one, radical amputation. you got to get rid of what is causing the problem. Now, again, the reason we know that Jesus isn't speaking merely of an external mutilation is what? He just talked about the heart. He just said the real issue is that it's internal. So the amputation happens beginning on the inside. Or you what? You take up your cross, as we will see. You are crucified. The, the sinful desires, and, and by the way, the Bible gives all kinds of very violent illustrations for killing sin internally. Jesus just, again, takes it external to make it, to, the illustration, to make it very visceral to us, like ripping out hands and chopping off, ripping out eyes, chopping off hands. The Bible is very clear about the internal need to radically amputate sins within our hearts and within our minds. This is a forceful act of will to turn away from the lustful desire first, combined with a forceful act of our body members to turn away from the image or step away from the woman, whatever it might be. These would have ongoing implications of getting rid of ongoing internal lusts, as well as acting to remove ungodly stimuli from before one's eyes. And those things we'll talk about more in the next couple of weeks. How do we do that? The language is if it makes you stumble. It's really like I, the, the idea is, is, is a trap to make you sin. Your hand or your eyes become a trap, or perhaps has been caught in a trap, and in order to get out of it, you've got to cut it off. Your hand is caught in the trap with sexual lust. You've you got to chop it out. Your eye is stuck there, so you've got you to pull it out. This thing that caused you to stumble, this lustfulness, whatever is causing it, has to be chopped off. And that first and foremost has to do with dealing with our sinful hearts, taking drastic action to get rid of whatever in the course of events will tempt you to sin or whatever thoughts are bringing the sin to your mind. So I'm going to just very briefly cover or just mention the things that we'll delve into more deeply in the next week, that this is a spiritual work. These are on your, on your outline, so you can just kind of maybe put them on the back. To do this, this this cutting off, this radical amputation, it's a spiritual work. Only by the Spirit of God can we put to death the deeds of the body. Romans 8.13, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, again, there's no more radical illustration than that. Kill it. It's even more radical than pull it out or chop it off. It's like, kill it, murder it, right? get rid of it. Well, that's, again, the, the, disease, the, the deeds of our flesh as represented by the thoughts of our heart, of our hearts. So it's a spiritual work. And, and so, by the way, if you're here as an unbeliever this morning, and you're going, I, I, wrestle, I wrestle with rampant sexual thoughts. 
I'm not going to advocate a whole series of external things that you might do to, to solve that. It's going to have to start internal. You have to know Jesus. You have to have your heart regenerated by the Spirit of God and in repentance and faith as you hear the truth of the Word so that you might begin this work of dealing with sexual temptation. It isn't like, well, I'll fix my sexual temptation so God will be pleased with me. You'll never fix your sexual temptation until the Lord renovates your heart until you cry out to Him in repentance and faith. But as you do that then, it's by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, the principles of the Word, and the Spirit of God illumining and empowering them in your own heart and mind. This is also a work of the intellect, will, and body. When I say spiritual work, I don't mean this. I'll just pray. I'll say, Spirit of God, remove these thoughts from me, and then I'll press on. Because that isn't how the Spirit works. Spiritual doesn't mean mystical or magical. It means the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to impact your intellect, your will, and your affections. And you put that Word into practice in His power to get rid of these thoughts and these temptations and remove yourself from these situations. Romans 6.11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So there's a considering, an intellectual understanding from your renewed mind produced by the Spirit of God. Consider. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. That's willful act. You may not let it reign. You know that sin doesn't rule you. You know you're in Christ, so you don't let sin reign. A violent act of removing sin from the throne in your will, by your will. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. And then it moves external. Stop using your hands, your eyes, your feet, whatever else, to pursue sexual desire or any improper desire. So your will, your affections... Your intellect are directed towards, your, towards controlling your body so that you do not sin. Much more there, but we don't have time for it this morning. It's a work of commitment, work of accountability. Job 31.1, he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And a covenant. Right, and this can move externally where we have accountability from others. It's a work of discipline. First Corinthians 9.27, I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Speaking of the desires within his body, it's an act of crucifixion. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You have been crucified with Christ. And yet in an ongoing way, you crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Galatians 5.24. And it's a work of glorification. Glorification. 1 Corinthians 6.20. For you have been bought with a price speaking directly of sexual sin. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. It's about making him look great. It's about increasing intimacy with him, which causes the world to say, that's a great God. And we do that as we put away our sexual sin. So there's a radical amputation, but also back in our passage, and finally, there's an eternal perspective which Jesus appeals to here. We have to keep the bigger picture in mind. So there, and in this case, he uses the eternal perspective in the negative sense. Back into your text. So glance your eyes back down. He says this at the end of both verses 29 and 30. I've just combined them together. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I don't really need to explain that, do I? The idea that you would be willing to put away sin in this life so that you wouldn't, in ex- whatever pain that might be, whatever difficulty that that might cause, you would put it away in this life so that you don't experience eternal pain, torment, and punishment for all of eternity. I think it's a small price to pay. Again, for unbelievers, the meaning is clear. If you are dominated by sexual sin, dominated by anger, as as we saw in the passage before, 
If, if it's not really truly your desire to turn from them, and even if you think it is, you never can because you're not a believer, then you need to understand that it's worth humbling your heart. It's worth the pain, as it were, of giving up yourself and your own life, the plucking out of an eye or cutting off of a hand and in giving allegiance to Christ. It's worth that pain, as it were, so that you would avoid eternal hell. That pain is worse. So it's clear, unbeliever here this morning, and knowing that because you are consumed with sexual lust, whatever it might be, fantasization that, that, that women often have, actual acts of pornography that men often have, whatever it might be, if you're dominated by this, I tell you, bend the knee to Jesus now. Any pain, as it were, that you experience from that, the losing of yourself, which indeed is, is, is a, in one sense, a great loss. It's not easy. It is far better to do that than it is to have your whole body go into eternal hell. Now for the believer, again, kind of a twofold application. One, it would be, why would you continue on in acts, continue on doing things, continue on pursuing the kinds of sin that, that caused Jesus to go to the cross, to take the wrath of God for you? Why would you keep, why would you not experience the pain as it were of setting aside the hard work that it takes to set aside sexual sin that you might honor the God who died for you, who took your eternal wrath, who took hell for you? Think it's worth it to turn away from that thought, to shut off that computer, to, to take captive those desires in your heart and mind, to please and honor the one who took hell for you? That's the reminder to believers. You're in the kingdom. The king died for you. Don't continue doing things that caused him to take your wrath. And then additionally, I would bring the positive side to you. It's not directly brought here in the text. Again, Jesus puts this in, in, a, in a very, in one sense, a very dark tone because of the danger of the sin. But I would put it, and we can certainly biblically, I would put it in positive terms for you. Your king died for you that you would have the ability to stand the pain and do the effort necessary to, as it were, rip out the eye and cut off the hand. You have the power to do this. You have the, you have the desire to do this. You have the, the delight in the one who calls you to do this. And so you can actually accomplish this command. You can go through the pain and difficulty of setting aside the sin and temptation and the difficulty that that is because of the love of your Savior, which is so great. Believer, you can do this. And that's what we'll talk about in these coming weeks. It is difficult. This sin is destroying families even now. And certainly all throughout the world, it is, it is causing these problems. But we can put away adultery. We can rip out our eyes and cut off our hands in the proper kinds of ways. Because we understand the deadliness of eternal hell and the greatness of the salvation that we have received. Now, I just want to leave you with some questions. When I, as I have these questions, my goal here is, is that you would just think through maybe even one of these that might impact you so that you could think about it throughout this day. And here they are. Don't try to write them down. I'll be saying them too fast. Just think through them and let one or other of them impact you. First question is this. Do you understand God's purpose for men and women and God's purpose for marriage well enough to even understand why adultery is such an abomination? Have you even got that basic level of knowledge about who you are in Christ as male or female and, and married man or woman, unmarried man or woman. Do you even understand what that means? You need to understand it better so that you might understand the nature of adultery. Two, do you value marriage enough to protect the marriage covenant both personally and corporately with all diligence? This is a corporate matter even though it starts individual. We are to protect the marriages in this church. Three, do you love and value Jesus enough to flee from anything that might taint your relationship with him or the church's picture of intimate relationship with Christ? Will you flee it because Jesus is so valuable? Your passion is so great. How could that be tainted? You won't let it. You're going to have to cultivate a passion for Jesus. 
Do you understand the bent of your own heart towards idolatrous and selfish sexual lust? Oh, men and women, this is true for both of you. It looks a little different. Some of the women are going, well, I, you know, I, don't, I don't lust after pornographic pictures. Well, some women do. But, but what do you lust after when it comes to the expression of sexuality or lack thereof? I will not give it. I will not have that. I want to, it's all kinds of perversions of this. So do you understand the bent of your own heart to twist sexual desire that is right and good and to twist it into inappropriate thinking and actions? Five, do you value and cultivate proper delight in sexual intimacy according to biblical principles so that sexual idolatry and selfishness are more easily defeated? Are you delighting in the sexuality that God has given to you, either waiting as a single person or engaging as a married person through all the difficulty and pain that the world, that sin in the world causes, that sexual intimacy can be such a very difficult thing to, to find proper intimacy with, but you guys, it's necessary to pursue and to understand its delight, to work at it together as a married couple so that you might defeat this sin of adultery. Six, do you consider sexual sin and the breach of marriage to be so serious that you would be willing to do anything necessary to remove it and the temptations to it from your life? And finally, do you continually cultivate an eternal perspective concerning sin and its consequences so that you might flee from sin's temptations and cultivate righteous delights? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fact that you know our hearts and you reveal to us in your word the sins that we commit and the ways that we might defeat them so that we might find our full satisfaction in you and that you might be fully glorified in us. And we pray that that would be the case, that our church would reflect your glory ever more clearly as we pursue sexual purity with every ounce of effort within us that this church would be a place of purity, from the children to the old men and women, that every place would be a love of, of proper biblical intimacy, of proper sexual desire, of waiting when it is appropriate, of engaging when it is good and right, and that as we have a proper healthy understanding and practice, that the world would be amazed at what they see, that you, Jesus, would look so good, that intimacy with you would, would, would seem so valuable, because of how we pursue the, the, the sexual desires that you have given to us. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online 
And we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.